Good morning. Father, now we come to hear the word of God. We confess at times we prefer something different. We confess at times we would like to water it down. But your word is truth. And in your word you sanctify us. You separate us out from the world unto yourself. And you transform us. So speak to us this morning. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, I've been taken to wearing a baseball cap. You know, it's one thing to be blind. It's another thing to be bald and blind. Because things creep up on you and nick you in the head. And you get gouges and all. So I wear a cap. Well, the other day I was meeting with a couple and I was getting things ready in the church. So I had my cap on. And uh, sure enough, it protected me. And I got done and sat down at my desk. And I thought of one more thing to do. And I didn't put my cap back on. I walked out in the hall and boom, right into the corner. Ah, that's life. Fortunately, I had my cap on the other day when the glass ceiling broke. Did you hear that? Yeah. Because the new admiral of the Coast Guard is a woman. Another glass ceiling has broken broken. We have quite a task before us this morning. I don't know if we'll finish it. My son commented uh, that I went to New Links in sermon title. And actually it's because uh, it's Pentecost, so I have something to say about Pentecost, but I have something that I haven't been able to get out yet. And <clears throat> It's about women. So, why not combine the two together? Here is what the Apostle John recorded for us in John chapter 7. He said, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me as the scriptures said, from his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, capital S, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And of course, Acts 2 is about the pouring forth of the Spirit, and it happens on the day of Pentecost. Now, we have to put Pentecost in perspective, so we think our way through the Bible. I hope you can do that with me. We have seven-day creation, and man is made, and in the garden, man sins, and man is cast out of the garden, and a seed of the serpent comes up named Cain and his offspring, and they marry the seed of Seth, the godly ones, 
and the whole earth is infected with evil, and God's sorry that he made man, so he floods the earth and brings it back to its previous state where the whole earth is covered with water. But eight souls he brought safely through in a ship. And after some time, they landed, and a new project, a new creation began. The man's name was Noah, and Noah was to bring rest to the people. But as you read the story, it moves into chapter 10, where there's a list of 70 nations. And in the list of 70 nations, there's a statement about Assyria and Nimrod. And when you get into chapter 11, there comes the Tower of Babel, the gate of God. They build this tower trying to reach up to heaven. And God comes down and he looks at it and he judges the people on the earth because they're all gathered together. And he said, if they stay together, they'll be able to do anything. So he scattered them all over the earth. He gave them different religions and he gave them different languages. And then along came Abraham with the rescue promise in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed in your seed all the nations will be blessed and that promise started way back with Abraham and it runs all the way down into the New Testament and we discover at the end of Galatians chapter 3 that lo and behold we are the seed of Abraham but Abraham's seed went down into Egypt, and they were enslaved in Egypt. And God delivered them miraculously and brought them out across the Red Sea. And when they crossed through the Red Sea, Egypt was put behind, and they were baptized in the cloud and the sea, and now they became Moses' people. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness with their sin, but before the wandering, they came to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, a covenant was made with Israel, the Mosaic Covenant. And seven weeks after Passover, on a Sunday, the law was given to Israel, their new covenant. They couldn't live up to that covenant. And so God eventually thrust them out of the land that was their inheritance. And he thrust them out under the Babylonians and there was great distress. We read about it in Lamentations 4. The people had become so evil, they didn't care about their little ones anymore. Seems something like our day, doesn't it? And the trouble was so terrible that mothers boiled their kids to eat. 
Jesus spoke about a similar thing. When he came and he spoke in the Gospels, they're recorded for us. And he spoke about a day that was coming that was unlike any other day. And that day came in A.D. 70. And lo and behold, mothers ate their own kids in the fall of Jerusalem. But when Jesus came, he ratified a new covenant with his apostles on Passover day. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. And ten days after that, on the day of Pentecost, seven Sabbaths after Passover, on the first day of the week, Israel got the law. On seven Sabbaths past Passover, on the first day of the week, the Spirit was sent to the church. That's the context. So there they are. Hyde read it for us in the upper room, and they're praying, and they're doing just what Jesus told them to do, to wait in Jerusalem until power would come upon them in the form of the Holy Spirit, and they would be witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem and in Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And that is the story of the book of Acts. And power came. And my goodness, when you read the story that Hyde read for us in Acts chapter 2, we're not going to exegete it closely. We're going to just think about some main thoughts from it. First comes this mighty rushing wind. That's the word for spirit. Both in Greek and Hebrew, wind and spirit are the same word. And uh, the apostles who were sitting there had tongues of fire put on them. And it takes you back to Sinai. And here's this mountain, and the people are standing before it. And up on top is fire and cloud and smoke. In other words, Pentecost in Acts 2 is a new covenant, and it is a new creation. And when you read the chapter, you also discover it harks back to Babylon. God had scattered the people, and they had different lips, which is a reference to religions. And he confused their language. And so all across the region, people were scattered. They worshiped different gods, and they spoke in different languages. And thus, they could not accomplish the things that they wanted to accomplish. But on the day of Pentecost, all these different nations in terms of Jews were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when the fire came, now 
All these different languages were spoken by the apostles. And they were not preaching the gospel. Mind you, Peter's going to preach that, but they weren't. They were telling of the, well, it says mighty deeds. The word deeds isn't in the text. It's the mighty things of God they were telling. And the people were baffled. Aren't these guys all Galileans? And look, we're all hearing from different regions the mighty deeds of God spoken in our language, and they're wondering, they're confused, they're bewildered. What is this? What does this mean? But some were mocking. And they said, oh, <laughs> these guys just have a belly full of wine. Now, it's the queen's celebration. You can see the way my mind works because I thought of a Beatles song from the knighted Paul McCarthy, McCartney about the queen. I got to tell her that I love her, but at first I got to get a belly full of wine. What does wine do? Well, it inflames people. And all of a sudden, people do things that they would not otherwise do. And Peter stands up among the 11 others, and he says, no, this, these men are not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And Thessalonians tells us people do their drinking at night. They get drunk at night. You know, and by 9 o'clock, they're still hung over. But these guys were doing no drinking, and he tells them what it is. And it's the prophecy of the coming of the Spirit found in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Now, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, I had Kevlin in my office yesterday, and we spoke about this, and I said, man, you're going to get a double fill of it. Verse 15, therefore... Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise men. The King James says, walk circumspectly, carefully, making the, most of, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Remember, I've said this. I'm going to reiterate it, say it over and over and over in the Bible. The search for the will of God is not for something, oh, should I marry this woman or that woman? As I remind people who are doing pre-marriage counseling, you know, if you don't get the right woman and God has the perfect woman for you and you actually picked the wrong one, you didn't get God's perfect will, then you've messed up the whole race of us. No. 
the will of God in the Bible is objective. The Bible tells you what it is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. The word dissipation is the opposite of being saved. It's unsavedness. But be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so notice there's a comparison between wine and the Spirit, and there's a contrast between wine and the Spirit. People go out and they do their drinking, and they drink too much and they act like buffoons and idiots, and they are feeling like they're on a ship on the sea, and they puke up their guts, and they can't remember what they did in the morning. The spirits like that simply in the fact that when people receive the Holy Spirit, they do things they would not otherwise do. But now it's not dissipation. It's not unsavedness. It is three different things. Look at verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, psalming with your hearts to the Lord. Number one, they sing. Two, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Whoa, they're thankful. Not just when it's the way they want it, it's for all things. And then third, and I have to change the New American Standard translation because it's a participle, and it says singing, thanking, and submitting, and submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. The word submit is not a very happy term these days. It is actually a military term, and it's a military term meaning ordered under rank. You get things in order, and you know, there's a hierarchy. And then you move right into the household order in chapter 5 verses 22 through chapter 6 verse 8 and the house in those days had a man and a man had a wife and his wife had children and the man had servants not like slavery in America these were servants who served a household and the man's in charge of his wife. And the man and wife are in charge of their kids. And the man's in charge of the servants. And so we want to talk about women today. Uh, women, that's a good subject, don't you think? After all, they're the pinnacle of creation. They're sugar and spice and everything nice. I guess you don't say those things today. <laughs> but looking back at Ephesians then for just a second, because I want to make a connection back in Acts 2 and then move on to something a little different. Notice in verse 21 it says, In being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now I just look down at the very end of uh, chapter 5 there 
where a summation is given about marriage. He says, nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself. Up above, we've been told that no one ever hated his own self, but nourishes and cherishes himself. And let the wife see to it that she, oh, whoops, fears her husband. It's the same word. So we have bookends. Fear of Christ and fear of the husband. Now, we know good and well that women aren't supposed to be afraid of their husbands. And Christ is the head of the church. In that sense, we're not to be afraid of Christ. So we translate it respect. It means something like uh, revere. Something like that. All right, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21, are the quotation of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, taken from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And uh, we're not going to take time to read it. We read it, and you notice that all of this language is language that Jesus used. Say in Matthew 24 about the sun, the moon, and the stars. And in Mark chapter 13 about sun, moon, and the stars. And in volume 1 of Luke, the gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 21, in about the sun, moon, and the stars. And so now, Jesus has ascended into heaven, but before he goes, he talks to his apostles for 40 days about the kingdom and then tells them to wait until they receive power. And the disciples say, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not... It's not for you to know times and epics. So what does he mean? No or yes? Yeah, he means yes. This is the time. Jesus is the king. The king ascends. The king sits down. Well, the king's got to have a kingdom, and so he has one. It's rather small in terms of numbers of people at this point, but it's his kingdom. And he says, okay, so now what you guys are hearing is you're hearing what Joel promised, that the Spirit would come, and your men and your women would prophesy. What are they prophesying? They're prophesying the mighty deeds of God, the mightiness of God. But that's not all that Joel has to say. Joel talks about a time, a day of the Lord that's coming. In the last days, this is what's going to happen. The Spirit's going to come, and then what you're going to see up in the heavens is some tremendous stuff, and what you're going to see on the earth is some tremendous stuff, and it's the same stuff Jesus was talking about in the Gospels. When did it happen? It happened in A.D. 70 
when Jerusalem and the temple and the people who called Yahweh their God but did not believe in him were overthrown and destroyed by the Roman armies. And what did they do? They did exactly what happened when Babylon came. They ate their own kids. This is not looking for some future time beyond us. There is obviously a future time beyond us. And there will be an end, as Revelation chapter 20 tells us. But this is not what this is talking about. This is talking about what happens in their day. Now you say, Craig, how can you make that assertion? You must be a nutcase. Well, I'm going to show you how nutty I am. So when you come down in the chapter then, of course, Peter gives his sermon. He talks about Jesus dying, going into the grave, not the cane coming up out of the grave, and he ascends on high, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father in accordance with Psalm 110, where God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All these people listening, they're pierced to the heart. Whoa, we killed our Messiah. What should we do? Peter says, I'll tell you what you should do. Repent. And let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus into the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Look at Acts chapter 2, and look at verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified, and he kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Oh my goodness, that is exactly the language that Jesus used over and over in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the language that is picked up by Paul in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2 about this perverse generation. The word is scoliosis. It's got a crooked spine. But Jesus talked about this evil generation, this evil and perverse generation. This sinful and adulterous generation. Upon this generation is going to come all the judgment from all the way back of Abel, all the way down to the end of Second Chronicles, which, by the way, we will get to someday. Save yourself from this generation? No, if we're talking about something that hasn't come yet, we're not talking about this generation. No, there's only one in all of history. All of history. There's only one adulterous, sinful, perverse generation. You can't be it. Because you had to be there when Jesus was there. And there he was presented to them, and they said, we think we'll take another husband, not you. We'll take Caesar. That's why they're an adulterous, evil, sinful, perverse 
generation because of the Lord of the universe showed up and they said, no, we don't want you. We'll take Caesar. So Peter says, save yourself from this generation. So, lots of people believed. Well, we're told how many, 3,000. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Well, added to those who had just received the Spirit, the church. How were they added? They believed. And they were baptized. After all, that's what it says. Repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus into the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Spirit. Now, of course, in our systematic theology, we're making all kinds of defenses to defend certain doctrines, and so we can't see straight anymore. Do people go to heaven unbaptized? Absolutely. Are people's sins forgiven when they're not baptized? Absolutely. You're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But here's the picture. Now, you figure out how to work it out systematically because the systematic theologians haven't figured it out yet. You figure it out. Here's the picture. You got a whole nation. They're coming out of Egypt and they go through the Red Sea and the land is dry, but the cloud of God is over them, misting and raining. And Paul says, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now you're at Pentecost. And what happens? Somebody repents. The other side of that coin is they believe. They believe and repent. And what do they do? They go through the water. Out of old-time Judaism, which is about to die, and they come through death to the other side. That's the picture. So 3,000 souls are added that day. You get down to chapter five or four, I don't remember which, and 5,000 more are added. I mean, it's a growing phenomenon. And then we're getting where we need to go, so hang on. You're wondering how you're going to get all this together. Then verses 42 through 47 of chapter 2 is a summation. And we're not to think of this summation, of course, as exactly on that day. This is what flowed out. This is what happens. This is what happens when somebody gets the Spirit. Now, Paul reminds us in different places in his own writings that uh, the church is the temple of God the people temple. We are the people temple, and the Spirit lives right here among all of us, in, his, in us, corporately. But Paul reminds us also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, your body is a temple, the Spirit, and you're not your own. You are bought with a price, and the cry is, I can do whatever I want with my body. And Paul says, no, you can't. God owns you. Right? Well, of course, the right we want to talk about today is 
we want those little babies inside of women to be consumed, aborted. We're just like Israel under judgment in 586 B.C. and A.D. 70. We care little for kids. We care about education. We care about pleasure. We care about how we look. We care about how people perceive us. We care about sex. <laughs> if I happen to get pregnant, I mean, after all, it's an urge and I can't help it. I gotta feed it. And if I get pregnant, oh, no problem. I'll just feed the baby to death. Paul gives us summarization of what happens when someone when the church receives the Spirit. Look at verse 42. Now they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. Probably were to think of, in this case, the word fellowship as defined by the breaking of bread and prayer. Maybe they're four separate things. You can't tell for sure. Someone wrote me a note and said they wanted to learn Greek. And I wrote back and said, well, Greek's not going to give you what you think it's going to give you. But anyway, uh, there it is. We've got Greek people over here who know Greek up and down. We've got Greek people over here who know Greek up and down. And they can't agree on what the text says. <laughs> Greek obviously doesn't solve the problem, does it? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And in the uh, numeric standard, it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Oh, doesn't that sound so spiritual? Oh, yeah. It's good to be a Christian. Of course, <laughs> that's not what it says. The King James is amazingly accurate. And John is lifting his new King James Bible right now, holding up for you all to see. It says, And fear came upon them all. And all these signs and wonders were taking place at the apostles' hands. Now, were they afraid? Probably not. I mean, after all, their sins are forgiven. They have the Spirit. Miracles are taking place. They love fellowshipping with one another. On Pentecost Day comes the first church Lord's table. They're doing all of that. And verse 44 says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continually with one another in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were, they were 
taking their meals together. Look, it's, it's a summarization. What happens when the Spirit comes into 3,000 souls? Well, they want to know more about God, so they're after the apostles' teaching. There's a kinship that's developed. They want to fellowship with one another. They understand something. This, of course, takes some time. They want to eat at the Lord's Supper, and they pray for one another. And not only that, you got a whole group of people, and some of them are rich, and some of them are poor, and some of them lost their jobs down the road because they're Christians. And so what do people do? Well, they're selling possessions they have. It's kind of like my wife. When COVID came, she started selling everything out of our house. But what they were doing is taking the proceeds of extra lands they had, like Barnabas, and they were helping needy people. Now what? You see then why the call to worship. Oh yeah, we're all anxious about this and that. What am I going to do when I get old? And How much money do I have to save to make it? But these people who had the spirit, they quieted their souls like a weaned child. And they said, okay, my hope is in the Lord. It's quite something, isn't it? So, Ephesians, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, see to it that you fear, respect your husband. And here we have, ah, oh, and fear came upon them all. There's a new reference. There's a new way of thinking about life. Because now the third person of the triune God has come into each life and the life of the church corporately and has taken up ownership. And when he owns, he goes to work. And he transforms people. And he changes them from nasty into sweet from ignorant into knowledgeable, from sour into happy. <laughs> he transforms them in all kinds of ways, doesn't he? Well, you know, I can see we're already going to run out of time, so you're going to get part two on this. But turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, my concern here is uh, I'm linking Pentecost. Israel had the law. They didn't, they didn't keep the law. But the Spirit comes, and the promise of the new covenant is that law by the Spirit is written in our hearts and on our minds. We're changed people. We have a disposition to obey God. That's what we want. That's how we feel. That's what we... That's what we enjoy doing. Now, we don't always do it, but that's the way it is. So Israel over here with words on stones. Words on stones don't change anybody. But you give somebody a belly full of wine, and they change. 
and you give somebody rivers of living water flowing out of their inmost being, and they change. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 is about prayer. It's about prayer for kings and all who are in authority that you might lead a tranquil and a quiet life. I've quieted my soul like a weaned child. My soul is at peace. Ah, what do you do? Why you look around and you say, man, inflation's going crazy. How am I going to drive down the street at six bucks a gallon for gas? Going to have to start carpooling to church. And you get all anxious. You sit back and wait, wait. My hope is where? Who's in charge? God is. Can I trust him totally? Absolutely. Now, we live in a culture that is just in a tangled mess, and the church isn't far behind. Everybody's anxious. I saw a little report the other day that, oh my goodness, because of COVID, everybody is just so depressed. And I'm thinking, let's just shove all those depressed people over there to uh, a war-torn country, see what they feel like then. We are wimpy. Our kids are depressed. We need more counselors at the schools to talk to them. Oh, parents have no clue what to say, so let's send them off to counselors. No. Our hope is in the Lord. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he talks about prayer, and we're not going to talk about that, except that he makes the statement in verse 8, that men are to be marked out by prayer. That's just the way I want to summarize it. And in 9 and 10, he doesn't talk about the women praying, what to make of that. People have different conclusions, but we're not worried about that right now. What marks out women is their cosmetics. The word world is cosmos. And the word adorn in the Bible is cosmotia. It comes from the word world, because God made this beautifully adorned world, and we picked the word up, and we said, okay, that woman's got her face in order. Cosmetics. But what are the cosmetics the woman's worried about in 1 Timothy 2? Well, it's not hairdos and dresses and makeup. It's good works. Men are to be noted by prayer. Women are to be noted by good works. And then he says this. Let a woman, verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 2, quietly receive instruction with all submissiveness. Are men supposed to receive instruction with submissiveness? Absolutely. That is, you submit to the instruction. Let them receive it in all quietness. Whoops, wait, wait, wait. Quietness, does that mean uh, they can't ask a question, they can't say, no, that's not what it's talking about. As Kevlin and I were talking the other day, some people have just quiet voices, like Evelyn does. You kind of got to go, 
would you say? But, you know, we know certain women, and one of our best friends and most lovely ladies in all the world is who? Dorothy Lowry. Does she have a quiet voice? Not a chance. And she knows it. She makes good use of it, too. So what is he talking about? Quietness is matched up at the beginning of the chapter with peace. Instruction comes, sit back and be quiet like a weaned child. No, no, just accept what you're told with discretion, of course. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. What? You mean I'm supposed to stay below the glass ceiling? I'm supposed to be happy not being an admiral of the Coast Guard? Well, of course, the Bible's not saying women can't do this and that. We're not talking about that. But of course, when it comes to the armed forces, the Bible does have something to say about nations that send their women to war. We do not value our women in this country. And the problem really isn't the women, guys. It's the men. So, I'm out of my time. Should I quit here and take another hour? But I'm going to just say a little bit more. So he says, in verse 14, uh, in, in verse 13 he says, For it was Adam who was first created. I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority, but receive in quietness. Because Adam was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into the transgression. Okay, so he's making a creational statement. It doesn't have anything to do with culture. As people try to translate the Bible today or interpret it, they want to go back to culture. Well, women back there, you know, they weren't allowed this because it was the times, but now it's different. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the order God made in his cosmos. And... He made men to lead, and he made women what? To correspond. I am going to have to take another lesson, but let me just close it with this. So now look at verse 15. Back in Acts. And those who were saved were being added to the church. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Women shall be saved through the bearing of children. What? Well, the Numering Standard says preserved because we can't hardly stand to think about the idea of salvation connected with the bearing of children. But women shall be saved through the bearing of children if they, that is the women, continue in faith and in love and in holiness with self-control. Now, does that mean women who have no kids are going to hell? Of course it doesn't mean that. What does it mean? Here's the summary. 
be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We're all anxious about all kinds of things, but about what God says. And God, right at the beginning, said, okay, here's the man. He's in the garden. He needs a helper. I'll give him a helper so they can extend that garden all the way down the four rivers all around the world. And to extend that, they got to have kids. And what are we training our girls to do? We're not training them to be mothers in the church. We're training them for pleasure, for meaning in life, as if motherhood lacks meaning. We're training them, okay, have your boy, have your girl, and then be done with it. Gentlemen, we are building our women. They are our glory, and our glory's not looking too good because of men. As one guy said to me, well, I want my wife to work in case I lose my job, then we'll have an income. Hope where? In two jobs? No. Hope in the Lord. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's wrong for women to work. That's not my point. My point is we're making choices because we're not quiet, trusting Christ. And we can't figure out what's going on in our country because we're not quiet, trusting Christ. And we can't figure out that everything that's going wrong in our country has more to do with the church than with anything else because we will not trust the Lord. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So women shall be saved. That is, let me rephrase it. The women that are saved. Now, don't take this too far. Don't get upset yet. Wait a little while to get upset. The women that are being saved bear children. Now, of course, not all women can bear children. Not all women bear the same number of children. But that's not Paul's point. Those who repent and believe in Christ, they take him for what he says. They're not trying to make him say something different. And in the church, we need to come back to devoted male leadership and That's what we should be training our young men to do. Get yourself positioned where you can support a family, get a wife, bear children. This is God's plan. How is he going to extend his kingdom all? Well, he's going to extend his kingdom all over this globe. Well, however he wants to, but certainly one of the major ways is by Christian families growing and spreading out.